1971, the average American saw 560 ads per day. Okay? 1999, the average American saw 1,000 ads per day. And in 2009, the scholars of ads, if you will, estimate that we see about 3,000 ads per day. Now, this is a bombardment. There's a uh, Mennonite pastor, actually, Mennonite, you'll have to note that in a second, he used to work for Porsche as the lead advertiser for Porsche. That's ironic, I know. But he said that his job at Porsche was to get inside the average American's head. He worked in the North American division. And he would try and manipulate your mind so that you thought you needed that Porsche. Advertisers aren't just simply educating you to say, okay, well, here's a number of cars, here's a Volvo, here's, here's a VW, and here's a Porsche. What's the best information I can get to purchase? No, no, no. What they're saying is that you need a Porsche, and I'm going to convince you that you, you need a Porsche, that when you go to the dealership, you think, man, I really needed that Porsche, and I'm going to get that Porsche because it's what I needed. And now this is just one example, and of course, he went on to seminary, became a Mennonite pastor, which I probably would have done as well if I was working at Porsche, but that's the path he's taken. And I think that speaks to what our culture is about. There are thousands and thousands of people bombarding us with a way of life that we're supposed to live. And how are we as Christians supposed to determine another way? And so there are three C's that I think that is bombarding us. And consumerism is the first, the second is competition, and the third is cult-like celebrity. And now, I didn't just pick those because they're three C's, although that's what you're taught in seminary. No, I actually do think those are three things that are bombarding us daily, and that is a worldview. Those three things are pushing onto us um, a worldview, and this affects how we interact with our brother, our sister, our wife, our husband, the way we interact with each other in the church, even the way we view Jesus. And so I'm going to unpack that a little bit more. But our text today is going to examine how we are to look at the world as opposed to through, these, through the lens of the three C's that are pushed upon us from everything so that we can't even think which way is up. Um, we're in the middle of a series, just to backtrack a little bit, called Life in the Real World. And no, not based off the MTV series as much as I asked Mark, but he thought of that title on his own. And I think what has been so great about this series is that it, it's taking us away from kind of the deep, the overarching levels, and it's really getting down to the nitty-gritty, to the day-to-day. And that's what Paul does in this fourth chapter of Philippians. And so two weeks ago, we talked about um, two women, which Mo, where's Mo? You pronounce so eloquently. I don't even know if I can pronounce it as well. Eudidia and Syntyche. And we talked about how they are forever called out in Scripture and now eternity as two women who are apparently in some sort of tuffle. What a way to be remembered, right? The last week we explored what a God-infused way of life means in the midst of anxiety. And so that's what Mark talked about last week. And so this week in our text, Philippians 4, 8 to 9, we're going to examine how Christians are to think and behave. So virtue and ethics, if you will. But before I get into what that means and the particular um, use of the text and what Paul is talking about, I just want to say a bit about virtue and ethics. I think Christianity, um, in the past several decades at least, we've been barred and we've seen religion as a list of do's. And two men in a book called Unchristian researched what are common beliefs, common held ideas, common perceptions of what Christianity is. They surveyed thousands of people, mostly between the age of 18 and 41, and they asked them, many of them were outside the church, they asked them, what do you think of Christianity? And the three most common words were judgmental, 
insincere, and hypocritical. And so the majority of people in the age range of 18 to 41 are using those three words to describe Christianity. And one of the reasons I believe that that is happening is because I, like I just mentioned previously is that we've been seen as a religion of don'ts. Don't drink, depending on your circles, don't play cards, don't dance. Anyone, can I get an amen? People who grew up in that kind of world, all right? So, and it ranges, and you have, on some ends you have, don't do this, on other ends you don't do that, but people see it as a, a religion of rules, regulations, and basically the ultimate kibosh on fun. And now, we believe here at Church of the Cross that it is not so much religion of don'ts, but rather it is a way of life focusing on do's. So love your neighbor as yourself. Um, lay down your life for your brother or sister. And so that is, I think, a fundamental difference of looking at Christianity. And so I think this perspective of hypocritical, uh, judgmental, and insincere is an insensitive focuses on a, a spirituality or religion of don'ts. Now we're about to get into a passage on a list of virtues. So don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. That's not what I'm saying by any means. But I do think that um, Christianity is a religion of tension. It's a way of life of tension. And as humans, we like to push away from tension. We want to swing to this pendulum over here and then swing to that pendulum over there. But I think there's a tension in the middle that Paul explores. Um, one analogy that I think is helpful for this kind of don't versus do's mentality is um, a farming analogy. Now, Mark, uh, Matt, Carson, and I were on a retreat up in New Hampshire, and I can definitely attest that I do not feel called to be a country parson by any means. I'm a city boy at heart, and Mark and I were sitting in the front, and Mark was saying how he you know, wrestles with this call to be in the country and to be outdoors. I, I just don't share that wrestling, but I'm going to go with this farming analogy anyway, and those of you who are farmers, maybe Linda Doc, you guys can correct me afterwards if I go. Afterwards? Okay, afterwards. Thank you. Um, but basically when you have two ways of containing cattle or livestock, often what we see in North America is the use of fences. So you have fences that are set up in between property lines, and that keeps your livestock in, their livestock out. So your livestock gets your food, and your livestock gets your water. Um, and it also keeps it from mixing up the two livestock. But in somewhere like the outback in Australia, which is where I got this from, two Australian riders, that's kind of ridiculous because you have expanses and expanses of farmland. So it's useless to have fences because you're really separating huge, huge plots of land from each other. So what they do in instead is that they dig wells. And so instead of using fences to keep people out, to keep the livestock out, they use wells. And that no matter how far the livestock or the cattle stray, they'll always come back to the well. And so notice the difference. One is setting up laws or regulations to fence people out. The other is using virtues as a well in which people come back to for life. And so this list of virtues that Paul talks about here, I want us to view them as a well as a place that we can drink deeply and come back to. Because we believe that Christianity, when it's lived out to its fullest, is actually the best way to be human. It's the most truest and the most sincere way to be human. So we want to come to this well of virtues that Paul talks about here to drink, not see it as a fence in which we are to guard ourselves. Does that all make sense? Did I do well with the farming analogy? Thank you. Carson gave me the thumbs up. When you're preaching, Carson, he's the man to look to. He tracks. <laughs> So if we are fighting these things in our culture, um, we want to examine, importantly, what the Word says here. And so Paul begins, this is Philippians 4, verse 8, for those of you who have your Bibles. I made a comment about Anglicans and Bibles last time. We all have to bring our Bibles. It's always helpful. 
But finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So finally, Paul's wrapping up a section, brothers and sisters would be a good way of saying it, people of the congregation. And he's addressing them. This is a letter of friendship. He's saying brothers and sisters, friends, people who I've done life with, people who I've been in church with, listen to these words. And as he goes on here, this may seem awfully foreign to us, this list of several virtues, but actually in that first century context, there is what we call uh, Stoicism or the life of Stoics, and they would often list these virtues. They would have anywhere from four main virtues to up to 27 lists of virtues. And these were not just ways to live your life. These were not just fences for them them either, but these were ways to actually, they thought, to obtain your best life now, if you will. So they saw all these virtues, and they sought to obtain their best life now with these virtues. Now, the four main virtues of the Stoics were wisdom, prudence, courage, and justice. So that's what they were anticipating. It's what, it might be similar to what, now, if I said this to you, hands, touching hands, reaching out, touching me, touching you, sweet Caroline, oh, oh, oh. You guys got to go to Red Sox games. But we all know this. This is part of Boston culture, if you will. So as soon as I started saying those words, you knew what was coming next. In the same way, as soon as Paul launched into this list of virtues, they knew what was coming. They're like, oh, okay, well, first is going to come wisdom, then prudence, then courage and justice. But Paul actually takes a twist on that. He doesn't lead us in those four virtues. So that's why it's important that we look at this. He's kind of taking something that's in the culture, something that's a part of the culture, but giving a Christian twist to it, if you will, and redirecting it in a way that's towards God. So the first one that he says here, finally, brothers, whatever is true... And this is what he roots all of this in. He roots all of this in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And we see this throughout all of Paul's letters. He says there is no hope apart from the resurrection. Even in Philippians 2, he goes about telling the story of Jesus, that he came down on earth. He made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death by the cross. And so in the beginning, Paul is running rooting these virtues, not on a list of abstract ideas, but on a person. So this is an identity thing, is that when we are facing this consumerism, this competition, this celebrity, this cult of celebrity, when we are facing the world about us, how are we positioning ourselves against it? I think what Paul is saying is that we ought to be positioning ourselves in truth or in identity. We are seeing ourselves as first and foremost sons and daughters of the king. And that's a mouthful. And it's going to take us a life time to learn what it means to have our identity rooted in Christ. But this is the beginning of where he goes with this. And so again, we need to root ourselves in this truth. He goes on to say that whatever is honorable, some of your translations may say noble. Um, A better translation might be whatever is worthy of respect. And now he's talking this not just how you're supposed to live life communally um, among Christians, excuse me, but how you're supposed to live your life amongst the world. So what is worthy of respect and what does the world view as worthy of respect? So, for example, if you're on the T, you're sitting down, the T is full, somebody comes on the train, you're never going to get a bad look for standing up and giving up your seat. Okay? No one is ever going to say, oh, that guy's a fool, he gave up his seat, or she's a fool, she gave up her seat. That is something that draws respect in our culture. And so as Christians, as we interact with the culture, it's not necessarily 
always appropriate to push ourselves away from culture, but to act in culture in this world that gains respect. And so even little things like giving up your, your seat on the tee is something that is worthy of respect and something that Paul commands us to. He'll, he goes on, whatever is just or right, depending on, on your translation. And again, he is talking about justice, one of the four um, core values that's proclaimed throughout history. And this is why at Church of the Cross, we seek to do justice. We seek to be a part of justice. We're seeking to begin a mentoring program in the fall. And actually, T.C. Moore is back there, who's going to help us over at the Boston Higher Education Resource Center. You can talk to him afterwards if you have questions. But we're actually wanting to engage in the city and engage the youth of our city through mentoring. And so this isn't a matter of justice that we see as called to. And again, as we do these things, as we pursue truth or identity, as we pursue things that are of worth, as we pursue justice, these are ways that are finding us back to the well. These are ways that we can drink deeply of Jesus Christ. And so that is our focus again. So as we pursue justice, we're learning what it means to actually be human. The next, uh, the next virtue here is purity. And we say often that we're called to be purity of heart. This is a check, again, on our motivations. How are we interacting with one another? Are we seeing each other as simply things to consume, people to compete with? And this, I think, hits most home in the workplace. Because for some reason, we can handle you know, dying to self, loving our brother and sister as ourself in a lot of places. But the workplace, you know, it gets complicated because you need that raise you need that advancement because you're paying for your kids' food. You're paying for the vacation you want to go to. You're paying for all these different things. And so virtue and ethics gets really tricky as we get into the workplace. But I think Paul here is calling us to a purity of heart even in the workplace. So what if we were to die to ourselves in the world of consumption, competition of the workplace? And I think that's what Paul is calling us to. Now, I know you may say that's easy for you to say, Pastor Ben, as your workplace is you, Mark, Carson, and Matt. But I do, I do think that we are prophetically called to be witnesses in our workplace. And so as we examine how we posture ourselves, what is our heart to our coworkers? What would that look like if we were to interact with a purity of heart? Now, he goes on here, this next one, uh, the ESV translates, whatever is lovely. And this one is actually foreign to any part any virtue list that we have recorded. A better way might be whatever is beautiful. So this is, and, and the meaning of this word is actually an aesthetical beauty, and a beauty that, that we might um, compare to an art. So if you think about this, think about this list. He's saying whatever is true, whatever is just, whatever is noble or honorable, and, he, and whatever is right. And then he adds aesthetic beauty to that. I think this ought to cause us to pause and think about what that means. I think that's why at Church of the Cross, we've made art, we made reclaiming the arts, if you will, um, one of our core values. Because we really believe that as Christians, reclaiming the art, participating in beauty, observing and engaging in beauty, actually forms and shapes our souls toward Christ. And now, beauty is not the God, so if we only do beauty and don't interact with Jesus in other contexts, that's not going to work. But we do see beauty as a way, as a funnel, if you will, towards Christ and knowing him more deeply. So next time you're thinking about what to do with your afternoon, don't forget that viewing art and viewing beauty is actually a way that shapes you into the person you're called to be through Jesus. And so I think that's a a powerful thing that we often overlook when we think of the different uh, virtues, if you will. And the last one here that he talks about is excellent or virtuous. So whatever is commendable. If there's any excellent, 
excellence. If there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So basically he's saying, think about all of these virtues. Ponder these things. Be educated about these things. Now, I've just gone through the virtue list, and you may say, that's great. Here's a bunch of virtues. But what does that, how do we really work our lives? How do we really shape ourselves into being someone who follows after Jesus through these virtues? And thankfully, Paul does not leave us alone. He doesn't say, well, there you go. Here are a number of virtues. Figure it out yourself. I'll see you on the other side. Rather, he gives us verse 9. How convenient. What you have learned and received, heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So he says two different, four words in two different groupings. First, he says, whatever you have learned and received. So this is actually something I think the church has traditionally done well. Spiritual formation or Christian education, however you like to say it. More of the intellect. And I think this is good and right. Too often we bash the intellect and say, no, that's useless. Let's focus on experience. But here Paul is commending this. And I think as we read tonight in um, Psalm 19 and in the Proverbs as well, there's again this refrain to seek after the word of God, to pursue the law or the scripture and pursue it deeply. And so I think in this passage, Paul is saying, how do you reshape your mind against consumerism and against uh, the cult of uh, competition and personality? How do you shape yourself against these things? And one of the biggest ways is through daily ingestion of the Word of God. And how does this look like? There are a lot of ways to do this. There's no one way to do it. But again, I just want to be challenging us as a community to be daily interacting with the Word of God because there's life and there's breadth and there's depth in that. The Book of Common Prayer is a great resource for us. If you have questions, I'd love to be able to walk um, some of you through that. I have an article that's been written on that. But I think there are great ways in which our tradition gives us to daily interact with the Word of God. And, And Paul is calling us to that. But he's not only calling us to that. That's a strong component. But he's also calling us in these next two, uh, this next grouping of words, whatever you've heard and seen in me. So he sets himself up as an example. And he's calling us to what I would like to say a liturgy with a capital L. Now, a small case L liturgy is probably what we do tonight. It's something that's got bounds to it. But I think that all of us, the whole world, has its own liturgy. What do you mean by that? Well, let's look at the mall as an example. The mall is the liturgy of consumerism. As you walk in, you see there's icons on every store. There's shiny words. Maybe Neiman Marcus might be one icon. Maybe Target might be another icon. You go in, and there's people, there's servers who help you find the right good. You go, you obtain the good. You go to the priest, also known as the cashier. (laughs) And in a very sacramental way, you give them something, and then they give you something back. And you walk out in a daze. You go to your next house of worship, maybe K Jewelers. You go, and you're helped away as you go through. And you come to the next priest, and you give them your goods, and they give you your goods. And you feel warm inside. You feel like you've been emotionally touched. And you walk away. And this is a liturgy that is common in our culture. It's a liturgy of consumerism. And what happens is that we interact with this over and over again. And this is why, as Christians, the Sunday worship, the Sunday liturgy is so important. And now I'm using Sunday liturgy with a capital L, the whole experience we have together. Because as we come together and as we say these words, as we pray these prayers, as we recite the Nicene Creed and, and, and participate in the Eucharist, we are being formed, whether we know it or not. And we're being formed into the image of God. And we're being formed towards Christ. 
And as we do these things, we are to remember that this is not accidental. It's purposeful. And this is why Sunday evening worship is such a big deal for us as Christians. This is why gathering together is so important. And we are called to do this, to recite this grand narrative. And this is why from time to time we will have people who come into our community who are seeking to know God, who, who are unsure of where they stand with God. They'll come. They might worship two or three or four times. And unknowingly, they're entering into this grand narrative. They're entering into the story, and they're beginning to interact with God. And they might wake up and say, in one day and say, whoa, I've gone way too far. I don't know if I'm ready to engage with this Christianity thing. And they might step back and say, I need a breath. And what's happening, whether we often realize it or not, is that we're being formed. We're being shaped. And sometimes we don't even know the shaping that occurs as we worship on Sundays. But this capital L liturgy, shapes how we interact with our spouses, how we interact with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so Paul, again, commends us to watch as he's done and to hear the words he's seen, to participate in this greater liturgy. And the last way, so the word, liturgy, and the last one is community. Paul calls us to be in community, and it's only in community that we are truly able to work out some of these tougher things. Because the reality of the fact is, in community, you end up hurting one another. You end up being selfish. You end up saying the wrong thing. You end up saying the hurtful thing when you should have held it in. And the joy of community, the time that we're most changed in community, is when we, we, when we ask for repentance and we're granted forgiveness. And it's in those moments that we are truly, truly formed. And so our community is calling us to these different virtues. Our community is calling us to what is right, what is just, what is pure. And we're being shaped. And so this this idea of community fights against the cult of celebrity. And you see this cult of celebrity all everywhere. Probably the most evident is a show called The Desperate Housewives or a show called The Real Housewives of New York, which Monica introduced to me last night. I've never seen such a show. Thanks. Thank you. But it was wonderful. It was forming for the sermon, so thank you, baby. And apparently in the show, what's going on, The Real Housewives of New York, is that they are fighting... They are all fighting to be the celebrities on the show. Can I get an amen? Someone watch this show? We're all too holy. It's all right. <laughs> but they're all fighting to be celebrity, and that's what's happening in our culture, in our community. That is what is happening in the workplace. Each one of us wants to be the celebrity of our workplace. And it's this culture that's, that's been created. And so this idea of community, this idea of laying down our lives for one another, fights this notion of the cult of celebrity. So we have the word. We have this grander liturgy. We have our community, and it is all these, these three things that allow us to focus on this deep well, these virtues that Paul proclaims here. And so again, the call tonight is to participate in these virtues. The call tonight is to go deeper in these virtues, yes, but at the same time, the call is to be formed by Christ. The call is to know Christ in a deeper way, and the call is to be shaped and transformed by him. So as we dwell on these things, and tonight I challenge you especially, as we dwell on the liturgy, as in a few minutes we go into the prayers of the people, as we go into the Nicene Creed, as we participate in the Eucharist, let our souls be transformed by what we are saying. Let these not be vain words of our mouth. And if we don't quite believe them yet, that's okay. Let us proclaim with the small amount of belief we have, and let us be drawn closer unto him through it. Amen.